and welcome to the Dice Are Screaming. Yes, another thrilling episode into the days of yesteryear and lore. And beyond. Oh, beyond! (laughs) Yes. Ah, To infinity and beyond. Thanks for tuning in, and of course, uh, hope your weekend's going to have lots of gaming fun. And if not, stick around, we're going to entertain you with some good topics tonight. Yeah, we're getting a little out of the, the traditional sandbox tonight. Uh, yeah. But before we do our... Oh, story, it might be superheroes, right? Uh, well, I'm just going to say that anybody who can go where we're going to talk about tonight is pretty darn super. All right. Well, I'm looking forward to it. Then we have some call-ins to take care of first. Call-ins, call-ins, call-ins from our listeners, all ten of you. <laughs> Tens of listeners that we have. Yes. <laughs> we appreciate you calling, so we can get right to it. First from Larry Hamilton from Follow Me and Die. Hey, fellas, this is Larry with Follow Me and Die. Good episode. Um, Strongholds and Followers was a Kickstarter that Matt Colville had, and it's about ready to deliver the PDF sometime in the next few weeks and the actual hard copy will be out in early 2019 i back that kickstarter because that sounded like an interesting thing to see his particular take on things and my character i've talked about on my podcast griswold the namesake of follow me and die ran through lots of followers and his problem was trying to find more and hanging on to the territory he eked out of the orc-infested lands. So, good episode. Uh, look forward to more. All right, that was Larry Hamilton, everyone. And yeah, that sounds great. Uh, yeah, I'm always looking for new takes on strongholds and followers. Um, it's been one of the big things for me is to achieve name level and uh, kind of eke out your own stronghold, even if you're like an Elf fighter magic user or dwarven fighter, you know, there's a lot of different things that you get from that. So that always adds fun for me. But, um, you know, also the other characters like uh, the thieves and assassins building uh, headquarters and hideouts for their nefarious activities. Oh, geez. And for me, that would be like a supplement in itself. Mm-hmm. Uh, that That's a worthy category with a lot of meat on the bone. Yeah. You almost can't pack that into just, you know, all of the various types of possibilities. Well, honestly, you could never get all of the possibilities. The imagination is limitless, but it sounds like a good outing by uh, the fine folks at Kickstarter. Oh, yeah, they bring in a lot of good stuff. So, yeah, thanks, Larry, for mentioning that, and we'll definitely check it out. And also, uh, good on you for Griswold, putting the screws to him, obviously, having to <laughs> work on getting more followers. Yeah, you show up with a bunch, but, uh, you know, as... Time wears on, they start their numbers start to thin, and well, you get to change it up a little bit. But uh, we also have another call in this one from Darren Green, so we're just gonna get right to it. Take it away, Darren. Hi, guys, Arfed here. Just been catching up on my podcast list, um, listen to your latest sort of stronghold episode. Um, never to be honest, had characters that got to those levels where they were. Um, moving on to strongholds or uh, setting up their own sort of things um 
but I always saw it as almost retirement for the characters. So I was interested to see if if your characters did get to that level. Did that mean that they sort of went off and uh, didn't really join with the party anymore, or did they come out and still do adventuring? Um, like I say, I always sort of saw it as a almost a retirement of your character, and you start a new character, and they'd only be used very occasionally. Or I thought it would be a good idea to do like a one-on-one with a, a GM if you was ever in that situation. Um, but yeah, I just wanted to see what you did with them, really. Um, see what you say. All right. Well, hey, thanks, uh, Darren, for adding us to your list to be listened to. Um, that's always encouraging. Yeah. But to answer your question, um, no, it's not really a retirement, although it does take them out of the play for a little bit. It can be a way to settle down and kind of, you know, put your character in sort of uh, a rest home, so to speak, for old <laughs> adventurers. But yeah, we've had several characters get to the name levels. And, um, you know, while they have to spend time taking care of their lands and managing their followers and all that, uh, they are not out of the mix. Uh, that was what we touched upon with uh, the fact that you have to leave a Castleton or Retainer to make sure that everything's running smoothly in your absence. And to give some specific examples, uh, we've had several campaigns where this happened in the space of you know, some uh, almost 30 years. Yeah. Uh, in one case, uh, we were getting set to start a new campaign with lower level characters, and... You know, we had everyone castle up. Uh, you know, the mage builds their tower. Uh, the uh, warrior went off and uh, got the right to build a settlement. Uh, and I believe it was a, an island in Lake Quag. Mm-hmm. Uh, but everybody went their own separate ways and had their own, you know, separate uh, domains. And once in a great while... We would haul them all back out of retirement for a special adventure. Uh, just, you know, oh man, I haven't played Barak in, you know, like three years. Let's let's dig out the old characters and go do something absolutely insane where we can fight the high-level opponents. Now, Elf Lord Moondance returns on a unicorn. And years uh, later, another campaign's uh, finished characters uh, went their own separate ways, but that followed into an epic-level campaign in 3rd edition. So despite the fact that they had castles and maintained uh, their own retainers and uh, militias and things like that on behalf of various lords, they were still active adventurers, and we were still in campaign mode, even up at, like, 12th, 13th, 14th, 15th, 16th level. Yeah. Uh, that was that was more 3rd edition era, though. Oh, yeah, but we all still did it first, but... No matter when you decide to do it, um, like with the example of Kingmaker and Pathfinder, you can start at like third level, building a keep and, you know, starting out real small with just a small palisade and uh, a uh, small stone keep and building it up from there with the community being, attracting people to that community like merchants and uh, tradesmen. But uh, that plays out over the type of the campaign and it's focused on that sort of thing, so... If you want to do uh, strongholds and followers at lower levels, you can, but uh, it's going to start off very small, and its impact is going to be pretty much nil and I, as far as the political scenes go. I should mention that uh, weigh what your players enjoy carefully, 
and make a decision about whether you want uh, property maintenance to be an issue because it does eat up some game time mm -hmm. adjudicating that. It is it is a part of your playtime, and I do recall some sessions where the epic level characters at half of a eight hour session, you know, and we would have some you know really lengthy sessions that would go till two o'clock in the morning. And we'd burn half of an opening session before starting a new adventure, really just focusing on the maintenance of all of our properties uh, and our retainers. Yeah, and like you said, also, sometimes you do need to take people aside for one-on-one -on -one sessions, but that can make for a solo adventure or, a, you know, a little uh, weekday adventure where, you know, you and your uh, player of focus who's doing those sort of things can sit down and... Uh, kind of play out a domain turn, like Birthright was a perfect example of that it had domain turns that you had to play oh. every month and every six months. Gosh, I had almost forgotten the Birthright campaign pack. Yeah. That was great. Yeah, that was, that was really good for playing and, and uh, kind of has uh, a little tone of uh, Game of Thrones. You know, you're tied to the land and you have powers specific to that land and bloodline. So, yeah, um, a lot of different uh, groups play differently about it, but uh, no matter how you manage it, it is a lot of fun. And yes, it can be a retirement phase for a character. Oh, but yeah. It that's... doesn't mean the end of the campaign at all. Yeah, it's awfully nice to. We also, one other last thing I really should mention well, is that <clears throat> periodically we would do special guest star moments where <laughs> the current adventuring party encounters one of the old characters. Mm -hmm. uh, who is now in the role of the quest giver or the adventure hook provider. Uh, and those were always fun. Yep. And always a lot of, uh, well, especially with a group of newer players uh, who didn't know one of our old characters. And if they didn't know the inside jokes and the quirks, they, they got to know them uh, pretty quickly. Oh, yeah. Well, so that brings us to our next part is... Uh... Yeah, we're going to talk about uh, Golden Age Batman versus uh, the 70s, the Bronze Age. Is that, is that what we're going to do tonight? No, I am so sorry. I, once again, I maim you with disappointment. Oh. Okay, I, I'm just going just gonna to let it slip. Extra Planar Adventures. Oh, well. And you've got to be pretty super to undertake these because these are not for the pain of heart. Uh, no, no, they're not, and uh, definitely not for the low levels. But no. uh, you know, around uh, <laughs> uh, player character flambe if they go to the elemental plane of fire unprepared. Oh yeah, um, yeah. So extra planar adventures, it is. So let's get cracking. So to crack it out, uh, yeah, the original adventure or edition of Dungeons and Dragons did initially come out with kind of an uh, homage to that there are other planes of existence, but weren't really particular about them. But later they developed, and by first edition, they were well-developed. Yeah, the first edition uh, delivered a really interesting view of the metaphysical world, incredibly well-fleshed-out. Uh, in prior editions, the, the earlier formats of D&D and in its... Protean beginnings, uh, coming out of that soup of literature and history, uh, had not gotten a chance to really flesh these out. But first edition AD&D provided this absolute wonderland of extra planar places to go that aren't your home plane. Oh, yeah. I mean, 
let's just be honest here. Um, a lot of people look back at the old days and they, they look at the dungeons and the wilderness hex crawls and things like that as the classic type of adventure. But we do too. But we have first, not forgotten. Yeah, first edition also put in there the weird metaphysics. I mean, what game had really delved into the metaphysical realms? And here it is. You know, yeah, RuneQuest did have the god planes and the rune planes and all that. But here it was codified. You had the upper and lower planes, like that included the seven heavens and nine hells and the abyss and pandemonium, Hades, Tartarus, Gehenna, all that, as well as. Nirvana and Pandemonium, the Twin Paradises, Gladsheem, Bytopia, you know, it just went, ran the whole gamut of classic mythological lands that you ascended to after you died. And then yes. it also had the Astral and Ithril, and then the Elemental Planes of Earth, Fire, <laughs> Water, and uh, Air, and, you know, then also the Positive and Negative Material Planes, which, wow... That's what a concept. Yeah, uh, they and I mean, uh, there were also charts and things like that to spell out the relative relationship and position of these things uh, in terms of their distance from the prime material plane. If distance can be considered a thing in metaphysics, yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, uh, but, you know. it was all very relative, but they they created a framework uh, so that people could look upon it and get a grasp of it uh, because it was an awfully alien concept from a very large number of people. Yeah, and it was seen as kind of strange and esoteric and kind of fiddly. And the main attraction was is that it shook things up. For instance, magic functioned differently on the astral plane Oh yes, than it did, say, in you know Pandemonium. And good luck using your fireballs on the elemental plane of water. Uh, yep. You know, you'll quickly see that curtailed. Uh, <laughs> different effects for different spells. And the DM Guide had a lovely section uh, providing for, you know, alternate uses of spells depending on what plane of existence you happen to be in, which quite a quite a piece of forethought on their part. Yeah, and it was all put together fairly well. Was it perfect or was it smoothering? No, but it required some preparation. And as Mike said, you just did not send adventurers there willy-nilly. They just didn't like, oh, look, today we're going to adventure in the Plane of Fire. Well, I guess we're rolling up new characters next week, huh? Yeah. Uh, this was a thing where low-level characters could experience cruel accidents. Uh, there were certain spell effects if they're facing a higher-level opponent that could fling them into another plane of existence, uh, separate them from the party, uh, leave them vulnerable to elemental effects in another plane of existence, uh, sealed in a rock inside the plane of elemental earth Oof. with no hope of escape. Uh, that Not was... to mention the monsters of rock. Yeah. Of which there are plenty. Yes. The Zorn. Oh, yeah. Crazy yeah. Zorn, man. <laughs> <laughs> I love Zorn encounters. Uh, anything that eats the player character's money is generally met with automatic hostility, and the, the Zorn was one of those creatures. It doesn't eat your hit points. It eats your treasure. Oh, <laughs> oh yeah, get me where I really live. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but that was the point, is these were inaccessible places until you reached high level. And if you're running a higher level campaign where your players have progressed... Uh, 
placing your adventure hook in such a way that an extra planar quest is necessary. You must go to the city of Brass and confront the Lord of the Afrit. <laughs> or let's go to the astral plane and all get lost. Yeah. Anybody who has been sent to another plane by random through an astral tempest, you have my <laughs> deepest sympathy. <laughs> uh, these were all viable adventure things if the player characters are prepared for the excursion. Uh, and that's, you know, point one is a higher level party. Even they would be hard. Like, wait, we, we every single one of us needs a ring of fire resistance to pull this off? Or, uh, you know... Uh, have plenty of spells of resist energy or fire resistance at your beck and call. Yeah, you just booked up all of your first and second level spell slots, uh, just mm -hmm. keeping the party alive in the environment they find themselves in. Yeah, that unique challenges that come with extra planar adventure. Uh, not to mention, I, I suppose we should touch on uh, all of the classic mythology that they included in the evil planes with demons and devils. Oh, yeah, yeah. They made the definite uh, difference between devils and demons, as demons are often put as kind of the archetypical enemy of Christian mythos. And I'm not using Christian mythos to diminish it in any way. I mean, I know that a lot of people. Oh, you mean devils? Well, demons, you know, typically are mentioned as the main uh, enemies of. Paladins and good line clerics if you're using the default setting, but you're also having to deal with devils who also had a different take in D&D and that's where they began to develop Like demons like more or less were kind of like Orcus and Demogorgon and Grozit and all them Yeah, very chaotic evil very destructive uh, they were you know uh, powerful arrogant and you know, kind of loose cannons with their power. Whereas devils were scheming manipulators. Uh, Tempters, corruptors, whisperers. Yeah, yeah, but, you know, they, they had a certain sense of organization. Yeah, you know, when you deal with the devil, you definitely knew who you were dealing with. Yeah. Because <laughs> you have been dealt with. Um, <laughs> always read the fine print. Uh, yeah, so, yeah, they did that with the evil and also put the uh, Gehenna and Tartarus in there as well with the... Four horsemen sort of thing. The, the 666 board. layers of the abyss. Uncountable. You know, 666. Mark of Beast. Oh! Iron Maiden song. Yes. Um, yes, so there's a lot of fun uh, in delving into that. But again, not trying to step on anybody's toes if you feel like I use the term mythos. Because, let's face it, the Catholic Church did a really great job of setting up its own cosmology. And D&D was smart to borrow from because it was already written and researched. I mean, Dante's Inferno, yeah. literally. The, this is classical material here. You know, this was not uh, whole hog uh, exposition on their part. This was very much a, a clear homage to some of the written works of the medieval era. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, Renaissance-era works, uh, the greater and lesser keys of Solomon. Uh, yeah, and also the astral and ethereal plane, ethereal where the dead transferred from, and back and forth and all that, and the astral plane, the plane of pure thought. You know. Yeah, it, it, as well as classical Greek literature. Mm -hmm. and, you know, Hades itself, and the river Styx, and, yep. you know, Cerberus guarding the gates of hell, and Damodans. Charon, the, you know, boat. Damons. Yeah. Uh, lots of classical, wonderful material that I, I particularly love 
about the original first and, you know, kind of 1.5 era uh, of expanded first edition AD&D. Yeah, and the Manual of Planes um, for first edition was a great help in making uh, the planes more approachable to uh, sites of adventure, even though, like, um, several AD&D modules, like Queen of the Demon Web Pits... Oh, and boy, did that touch on pocket dimensions and demi-planes. Yep, and, uh, yeah, you really ran the gamut going through there, where uh, Loth had made her inways to several other prime material planes and alternate worlds, as well as other realms. And, and you could have whole mini-campaigns just fighting against her in these other planes of existence and helping the beleaguered persons of those worlds. Uh you know, little mini campaign inside the single module. Mm -hmm. <laughs> as well as like the Temple of Elemental Evil with its quasi elemental planes in the bottom of it. Yes. Or the portals to it. Not that they weren't in the bottom, but and you can only get there from the literal under temple, the greater temple. But yeah, so there was a lot of good adventure ideas tucked within uh, Queen of the Demon, Demon Web Pits that kind of opened the gate for a lot of people, and Manual of Planes took it and ran with it. Also, Ravenloft, another pocket dimension, or exactly. alternate dimension, if you want. Uh, and also things like the Shades on the Plane of Shadow. You know, oh. Plane of Shadow, and homaged in Stranger Things as the Upside Down. Uh, very much. Uh, a... a Shadow plane where you know up is down and left is right and you know well yeah it's, it's a dark it's the same but different bizarro world in Superman yeah, yeah. so these are ideas were yeah. not like <laughs> these were all great adventure ideas but why would you go there why would you go to the plane of fire well Mike talks specifically legendary places like the city of brass which is of course featured on the first edition dungeon master's guide correct uh, if you uh, look at the face page and turn the well, the, the face cover and turn the book around. It's all one single illustration and the view on the back is the fabled city of brass on the yeah, plane of fire. of fire. Yeah. All that great stuff. Why would you go there? Well, the Afrit, while somewhat despicable and hostile, they are powerful and they can be bargained with. Yeah, and there is no reason that uh, bargaining... I mean, it can even be a challenge to go to the Plains of Good and bargain with powers of... you know, it, it, Just because a powerful being is good does not mean that they're like a giant dispensary of goodies, okay? That, oh, yeah, you can go to you know, the Plain of Olympus and uh, deal with the Greek gods and all the things that go on there. Yeah, try to get something out of them for free. Mm -hmm. uh, I wish you luck. Or, you know, in Norse mythology... Good heavens. Oh, boy, that adventure Don't, in Dragon Magazine, Jotunheim. The, the only thing worse than trying to strike a deal with a devil is trying to get one over on Odin. Oh, uh, boy. <laughs> he does not... Uh, he, is, he is not notoriously uh, free of hand with the goodies. No. Uh, it's an even change, you know, something for something. But in Extra Planar Adventure, if you place the right hook... The quest for an item that can only be found by going here, there, and dealing with these various powers and defeating these various creatures. Uh, you can justify placing characters in a situation where they have to get out of their comfort zone, go to other planes, find themselves diminished in power. 
Uh, it's a great way to curb the strength of high-level adventurers when you're running an epic-level campaign, because a lot of their power and ability hinges mostly on everything working the way it's supposed to in the prime material plane. And when you snatch those assumptions out from underneath them, it's a whole new ball game. You know, yep. make it them makes sweat, make them work. And challenge is fun. Don't let your players tell you differently. I don't like this challenge, it's too much. This challenge isn't to my liking. Well, deal with it. First of all, your players, as they get spells like Plague Shift and Astral uh, Projection and Psionics, you know, these avenues open up to them as adventures. So, an item could be lost, like in the classic adventure, Betafencer, ah. where you have to go to the Astral Plane and find a Holy Sword, and it's being held by Githyanki in their, one of their Astral Ports. And also, you can uh, look at, uh, I mentioned the module uh, Jotunheim, Jotunheim, where you had to go and get a hammer that had been crafted by the dwarves, and the giants were scheming to use it to slay Thor. So oh. You had to go and help that, as well as other adventures throughout the D&D Cosmos, like we mentioned Ravenloft, but Mike's got something here he wants to say. Oh, very much so. This is, this is a noteworthy moment, and those who remember... Uh, you know, the early Dragon and Dungeon magazines uh, will probably remember this one. The Mace of St. Cuthbert. Cuthbert. Oh, yeah. That, where yeah. you went to... Uh... You went to Earth, to modern-day London, to break into a museum, and you're a bunch of adventurers in modern-day Earth, London. <laughs> yeah. And... and you, you had to find allies and friends willing to help you pull this off. Very the Fisher King. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah. Know, Robin Williams movie uh, from, I, I believe, the late 80s, early 90s. But uh, you find yourselves questing in <laughs> an extraplanar dimension that happens to be modern-day London uh, in search of the, the Mace of St. Cuthbert, which you hope to bring back to your world so that you can fight evil with it. Yep. Which, that, these are the things that are possible with extra planar adventure. Well, um, let's not forget Isle of the Ape with the Crook of Rao. Oh, wow. I've yeah. forgotten that one entirely. Yeah, that's a, that's a demi-plane, and uh, that's for very high-level adventurers, 15th through 18th, you know, as the entry level. Yeah. It, <laughs> mm-hmm. Boy, does that give you adventure in spades. Oh, those barbarians. Um. So, yeah, so basically King Kong, that was what the Isle Ape was about. But uh, we digress. Nonetheless, uh, that was the big thing, is that when you went to another plane, you know, the sky was the limit. You could do and place anything you wanted on those planes, as long as it was, of course, uh, copacetic to that plane's ability, like going to hell, like the classic Paladin Hell illustration that everybody has fun with. You know, that is, of course... uh, Every swing of the sword is a strike <laughs> for good because there is no innocence in hell. Yeah, there are no good guys here. Uh, you don't have to worry about uh, accidental civilian casualties. You're in hell. Uh, every swing counts. That's right. And so, again, it's all how you want to uh, put the hook in there and make it uh, fun and interesting for your adventurers, your party, and uh, also for uh, the player side. It provides a lot of difference where, like Mike said earlier, that you've kind of gotten used to things working as they normally do. Now you're going to a place where the rules of magic have changed. And this would be, of course, the focus for a lot of other uh, 
planar adventures throughout the years. But uh, finally, when second edition came around, they took Planescape and made the City of Sigil and the Lady of Pain and all that, and different factions vying for control of the City of Sigil and its gates to the Outer Plains, you know, made for a very uh, intrigue-laden and also quest-heavy area because, you know, you're always working for your faction. There's always work to do. Yeah. And, uh, of course, the city itself is just really huge. It's kind of built like a Taurus, circling the concordant plane of opposition, the very center of the universe where all magic permeates from. So it was kind of a nexus point for all sorts of fun and extraplanar skullduggery and intrigue. But it used the whole Cosmverse and, uh, of course, blung, brung the blood war into the four, but uh, we're not going to discuss that too much. Yeah, what the hell is a Beata Zoo? I just know doubles. Yeah, uh, yeah. just to, to, to touch on that for a note for context, the second formal edition of D&D made some adjustments that were intended to allay some of the complaints, and I, I understand from a business perspective that this was kind of a necessary move. It, it did diffuse the situation uh, because there were some active complaints from parents groups, uh, most of whom were heavily colored by, well, uh, just an enormous amount of total BS, uh, and encouraging one another in absolute hysteria and spreading a great deal of falsehood. Uh, but the staff of TSR did a fantastic job uh, pulling back from that, and to make their product more palatable and to allay these hysterical fears, uh, some things were lost in translation that I sure. I really missed because I I personally thought that uh, I mean if you're a history buff and you're looking at stuff that is uh, right out of like Catholic uh, demonologies, uh, it's like playing a piece of history. You know, except that now you get to go kick that demon's ass. Yeah. Uh, and the Batazu and Tanari were the replacements for demons and devils, and they were a little less satisfying to me. Uh, I didn't find that especially interesting at the time. But there were other facets of second edition that I did like. Uh, yeah, the well, introduction rose by any other name. I mean, it's still... The introduction of Faco, which admittedly oh. was not... Well, yeah, but we started to get off the weeds of the yeah, meta topic, but, so... You know, you know, yeah. So, <clears throat> so whatever may have transpired with second edition, uh, it still cemented the practice of going to other planes. Yep, and it, you know, Planescape was just more—you were doing it right from first level. And they kind of had, if you will, uh, lesser avenues of approach with the minor portals and planes and portal keys that attuned you to those planes and things like that. that you had to find and use. And, of course, various vendors would have them or give them to you so that you could go to the plane of fire and not get incinerated within the first five <laughs> seconds of being in there. Yes, uh, that's another fallback for the DM. If you're feeling kind, and I'm generally not, uh, <laughs> which doesn't say good things about me, but if you are feeling kind and you wish to facilitate an adventure... It is fantasy role-playing, and there is such a thing as magic, and you can always, you know, like, have somebody provide them with amulets of passage that permit them to, you know... Yeah, and, and, yeah, portal keys were just basically an easy explanation. You were tuned to the plane as if you were a native there. 
but you didn't have any greater inherent powers. Like you didn't have total, you had total immunity to the planar effects, but you were still susceptible to certain things like burning hands or uh, fireball, whatever, if you went to the plane of fire. You just had bonuses and all that. But again, we're getting off the weeds. Point is, the way to play planar adventure is to look to it as uh, an exotic locale, kind of like enough. You've just won an all-expenses-paid vacation to Acapulco. Oh. Or the elemental plane of fire. Guess what you're getting? <laughs> a ring of fire resistance. And that's not all. <laughs> uh, yeah, this is this is not your typical Hawaiian vacation with a little fire walking. Everywhere is fire. <laughs> yeah, the fire is everywhere. Get out of the fire, get out of the fire. It's, it's everywhere, genius. Yeah. yeah, difficulties abound. Uh, and just because an item permits them to travel there does not mean that the impacts on their spells uh, and the diminishment of certain abilities uh, doesn't also hold sway. Right. You can scale up or scale down as you see fit as a DM. I mean, the power is really yours. And while we've talked about the classical planes, most typically the elemental planes, let's not, and uh, we've talked about the higher planes of existence. Let's not also forget demi-planes and pocket dimensions. Now, we did touch a little bit about Ravenloft, but there are other ones like Isle of the Ape that is also a demi-plane onto itself. And, of course, anything can happen on those. Much uh, acknowledgement to Jolly Blackburn and the Bag World. Oh, yes. Knights of the Dinner Table comics. Uh, <laughs> Jolly Blackburn had an entire story arc that uh, recurred as the extra planar dimension that made up their bag of holding uh, was of a rare type that permitted connection to or travel to other zones and therefore other bags of holding. Uh, and <laughs> because the player characters had gotten extra cheap and hid all of their staff and personnel inside their bag of holding and forgot about them, to avoid paying them, by yeah. the way. Yeah, this was done to avoid having to pay them. Uh, they shuffled them into the bag discreetly, only to discover that all of their vast store of supplies and food and other things had been used to build a keep inside the bag, and that these were now the residents of what they referred to as Bag World. Uh, and they had... Uh, made use of all of those supplies very handily to build a sustainable, uh, agricultural, uh, valid life inside this pocket dimension. But this is a reminder, much like what Jolly's done, there is no reason that another DM cannot do many the same kind of thing. Little tiny pocket dimensions with pretty much anything you can imagine. Yeah, so, it, you know, sometimes you'd see them in, like, going back to the dungeon or crawling around the wilderness that's just getting old hat. Shake it up. Send them to another plane. Make the quest. Go to the city of Brass and retrieve me this MacGuffin. <laughs> or let's go all to the astral plane and try to lose our way. You know, no matter what you do, uh, make it fun and, you know, just keep it fresh. And that's one of the tools that D&D gives you, and it's why it's such a good and diverse game. That's, or constant improvisation and idea mining. I am glad that all of the additions of D&D that have come since the first mm -hmm. have included an element of this to one degree or another. Uh, I'm glad they've retained that because it is an important facet. It is something that I see as unique to that time period in first edition D&D. And 
keeping that tradition alive in later editions is a terrific choice on their part. I strongly yep. approve. Extraplanar Adventure is not for every single day, but having it there in the DM toolkit is nothing but win. Yep, and just remember your one prismatic spray roll away from going to another plane against your will. <laughs> so, with that, we hope your weekend is going to be loaded with gaming fun, and if not, well, hopefully your week will be, but uh, keep those dice rolling, and remember, may, may the, the dice always roll in your favor. favor. We're out. See ya! Thank you.